Um, this song right here, it, it talks about um, uh, kind of the life of a, of a person who has to travel around preaching God's word and just basically the things that he has to go through as far as leaving his family behind. But um, he knows why he has to do it. I haven't played this song in a long time either, so here we go. They've done a lot of traveling together, Dan and his family, and appreciate that. 
Uh, as I said, well, uh, something I want to mention out on the uh, in the foyer is the financial statement for uh, the month of January. And if you haven't picked one up, get one because <laughs> it's going up. <laughs> we had a good month. <laughs> uh, positive cash flow. I don't know. Yeah, that bookkeeper, she's working magic there. <laughs> Uh, we're thankful for Joy, too, and you can pray for Joy and I. We're going to a little tax seminar coming up this uh, Thursday. Uh, there's a lady who up in Winona Lake, Indiana, who specializes in uh, doing ministers' tax returns, and she comes to Chattanooga just about every year and does a seminar, and I thought it would benefit. I go. Um, I don't hardly ever miss, and I thought it would benefit her and the church to go for her to go as well. So we'll both be attending suffering over at the Hilton Garden Inn on Shallowford Drive. <laughs> it's just a just a meeting room. That's all. I <laughs> uh, appreciate again all the cards and everything that everyone sent. It was very very nice. I still getting some cards yet, and uh, even had a letter in the in the mail this week from uh, over at Memphis. It was addressed to Alan Robinson, and the return address said Jeff Baldwin. That's my son-in-law over here. I thought, man, that's really neat. He's sending me a card or a thank you or something here, you know. And opened it up, and here it was. He'd sent his tie check over here to community all the way from Memphis. So I said, hey, I'll take that any day. I dropped that over to Miss Joy this morning already. And here they are then visiting with us today. So they're grateful for that. You just keep them things coming now, Jeff. All right. Jan, Jan is working. He's in school, but he gets to write the checks. So that was pretty good. All right. Well, let's um, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to uh, gospel or the gospel, the book of uh, Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, and um, I want to look at a very simple passage and one that we're probably very well familiar with in in chapter two and. and um, actually not going to focus just on that passage, but dealing with the one, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10, and so on. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Most of you probably have those verses memorized, and if you don't, you should. Uh, there are some very key verses in the, in the Bible, and we need to know those. Now, Paul, in writing this letter... Um, many feel that it was not a letter specifically to Ephesus, uh, to the Ephesian church, but it was more like a circular letter or an encyclical. Uh, it was a doctrinal letter, more or less, or a doctrinal treatise, inasmuch as uh, many older manuscripts do not include the words uh, at Ephesus in it. It just says, uh, to the saints, to the faithful in Christ Jesus and skips that entirely. And that may very well be. There are several several arguments in favor of that. And as you well know from reading many of Paul's letters, especially to places where he had been and knew several of the people in the congregation at the beginning or at the end of the letter, oftentimes, mostly at the end, he would mention several of their names and, and make specific reference to them which he does not do here in this letter here uh, that we call Ephesians. So that would, could be one of the one strong clue that would uh, give us that idea that it's a general letter. Then another thing is, is just the doctrinal content. 
of this letter, or, or if it is more like an encyclical, uh, just a, a paper drawn up that Paul had written. And it could very well be that as well. Um, <clears throat> Paul in this letter uh, in chapter 2 begins by speaking in verse 1 about uh, those who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, he mentions that, of course, this is chapter 2, after having uh, gone through what he mentioned in chapter 1 uh, regarding the church. And as he ended in, in verse, uh, uh, verse 21, he said, and this is of chapter 1 now, of verse 21, he says, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And, he says then in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, you who were dead in trespasses and sins. You who were dead in trespasses and sins. And, of course, he's referring to these uh, uh, Ephesian Gentiles or, if not to Ephesus, to this area, probably somewhere in Asia Minor, uh, many feel that in the book of Colossians he refers to the letter from Laodicea, that maybe that's even the same letter, that it was addressed to several different churches uh, in that area. But he's referring to Gentiles here in specifically in verse uh, chapter 2 and verse 1 when he says, And you who were dead in trespasses and sins... And, he's, and, he, and he says then in, in verse 2, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. So there was a particular manner he's describing here in which they walked. And it was according to the course of this world or the manner or way of this world. That word course is our Greek word eon or age. So he, and, and then the, for the word for world is cosmos. Now you know that in other places the word uh, eon is also translated world, so it can be confusing, not knowing which one he's referencing here. Here it is, in time past he walked according to the age of this world, that is according to the, the principles or characteristics that describe the, this cosmos. And, and they were walking in accordance with that. Now, of course, the, the reason Paul is pointing that out is, is, is that now that they are members of the body of Christ or members of the church, they are to walk in an entirely different manner. They are to walk in a manner which is strongly opposed to and against this. Then he says, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons or the, ch the children or the sons actually of disobedience. Uh, sons of disobedience, again, describing, you know, we've talked about the word son before and its implications as to uh, um, a son in the family and what it meant in terms of inheritance and so on and connection to the father and all that the father had and owned. Well, here, sons of disobedience just simply re, uh, applies or refers to those who, who are characteristic of this, this age, this cosmos in which they are walking, and they are sons of that. 
sons of disobedience. And of course that disobedience is talking about those who walk according to the ways of this world and its pattern and its characteristics and everything that can be identified with the present world in which we live, he says those are walking disobediently, not in obedience. So this is something, though, that he says is in time past. This is how you used to walk, not how you're to be walking now. And so in verse 3, then, he says, among whom also we all had our conversation. Now, Paul's including himself here. We all at one point in time, had our conversation or our behavior, our way of living, our manner of life. That's what the word conversation means. He says, we all had our behavior or our manner of life in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. And that is to say, they had no choice in the matter. When they were fulfilling the desires of their flesh, and of their minds, that's those things that came to mind, it was only by nature. They had no other way to think. No other way or no other process by which they could conceive of anything or think about anything other than according to their nature. And that nature, he says, is that they were children of wrath. Now, he contrasts that then in the following verse. He says, but God who is rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins. Now you see he refers back to where he began this this portion here in verse 1. You who were dead in trespasses and sins. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, God has shown his love and mercy in this. He has quickened us together with Christ. Now, there are three things he mentions here as a result of that. Well, then he says, of course, for by grace are ye saved, um, that we are quickened together with Christ. And then in verse 6, he says, and has raised us up together, and implied there, of course, with Christ, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, or in the heavenlies. Maybe you have a translation that just states it, in the heavenlies, or in the heavens. And again, this is important for us here, because Paul is speaking in general terms about the manner of being brought to life, having been dead in sins, having the old, what we would call the, our old nature, the nature that was dead. It was according to this world. And it was dead, he says, in trespasses and sins, and yet now, he says, has been made alive. Made alive or quickened. And, of course, that's an operation which only God can perform. Only his spirit can do. And so this was nothing uh, that he mentions here that anything that these people he's writing to, uh, even those in Ephesus, could do anything about it was nothing they had any control over. It was all from God. And it was all His work. He was the one who performed this work of making alive from the dead with respect to their sins and their trespasses. 
And then, of course, in conjunction with that, though, it's important, I think, also, and we often overlook this in, in concerning the gospel, is that the resurrection is involved. The fact that Christ rose from the dead and is alive and he makes the connection or association of that with us, that when we are quickened by the Lord and made alive, he says there he has raised us up together with him, with Christ. And so involved in that then is a resurrection. There has been a raising up taken place. Now, of course, that has nothing to do with the future resurrection from the grave that is to take place with our body. And then this placing us together in the heavens. And that tells us something very specific about what is going on here. Now, we've got to move on to the farther in the passage here to deal with this, uh, which we will, but simply to point out at this time here that there is a distinction then being taught here by Paul as regards Israel and the Gentile. Here, it's an association with heaven. And you remember that everything that we've ever read or talked about with respect to Israel has to do with the land. It's earthly. But here, it's heavenly. Now, if we just skip down to um, verse 11 of chapter 2. And notice that he says there, Wherefore, remember that you, or ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Now he's getting ready to embark on a description here of what they are like now, as opposed to what they were like in the past. And he says that, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So the Gentiles being uncircumcised, the Jews being circumcised. And he said that's an, he was... He's pointing out here to us that that's an operation of the flesh. It was man-made. Men had to perform this circumcision. And he makes the strong distinction between those who have accomplished this in the flesh as opposed to those who had nothing accomplished at all. They were uncircumcised. But then in verse 12 he says, "...that at that time you were without Christ when you were uncircumcised." And you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, those who were the circumcised, and that circumcision was a sign of their inclusion in the household of Israel. They were members of that, that community. And you were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now this is what it was like prior to their being made alive prior to their being dead in trespasses and sins. Not only were they dead in trespasses and sins, but without hope in the world. And aliens from the covenants of promise that God had given to Israel. So they were without anything. And yet he says in verse 13, But now, but now in Christ, this is what you have. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, are now made nigh or made near by the blood of Christ. That is, like the Jew, they have been brought near to God. But notice what has happened now with respect to the blood of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, uh, his, his burial, and his resurrection. 
is this in verse 14. For he is our peace who hath made both, that is the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jew and the Gentile, he has made both one. They are now one and have broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So prior to this time, Jew and Gentile had a wall of partition between the two. And it's described here in these verses that the Jews had the covenants of promise. They had the hope. The uncircumcised, the Gentile, did not. They were aliens from that and had no regard or no promise or hope of anything with God in respect to these things. But now, he says, that's been brought down. That's been removed. Not just lowered, but completely abolished and removed. And so then, he says in verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, or two, one new man... So making peace. And so having done so, then there is now just one new man. That is, to the believing who were circumcised previously and to the believing who were the uncircumcised or the Gentile and the Jew, he says, in Christ, they are one. And so it's improper for us then to refer to ourselves anymore as being Gentiles. Now, we are Gentile as to our race and as to our origin, and we can speak of it in that manner, but I'm not a Gentile anymore. In Christ, I am a member of a new community, that one new man. But, you see, likewise it is also for the Jew. The Jew, the Israelite, who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and accepts him as Messiah, he also is no longer a Jew. Of course, he hasn't given up his racial identity, just like we haven't. By racial identity, he's still a Jew. But in Christ, he's no longer Jew. And therefore, all those old things that connected him with his Jewishness are now a part of the past. He is a part of the one new man in Christ. He holds to and clings to the hope or the promises in the same manner that you and I do now. Now, having said that, Let's go back over to chapter 1 for just a moment. And, um, you know, in beginning this epistle then, in chapter 1, uh, Paul, in addressing these people, and we'll just assume here for sake of ease of referring to it uh, at Ephesus here, because undoubtedly this is the letter that went to Ephesus since it's addressed to them, um, to this Ephesian church, he talks to them about in verse 5 about, well, in verse 4, that they had been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, or adoption of sons, literally. Not children, but sons. And then he talks about in uh, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So there we have that distinction that those things in heaven and those things in earth will one day all be brought together in one. And therefore, uh, just as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 
when the kingdom is delivered back to God the Father, that God may be all in all. That there is coming a day when all things will be brought together to, into oneness under the headship of God the Father. And that goes beyond the millennium. So what I'm trying to get us to see here is that much of what Paul is speaking of here goes beyond the millennium. But he doesn't ignore that. As a matter of fact, in verse 12, when he says, uh, well, actually in verse 11, he says, in, all, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted or actually hoped in Christ. In whom you also hope, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that, or actually when you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, uh, which is the earnest of your, our inheritance. Now, I simply mention those things to say that in, refer in referring to other, uh, well, other letters of Paul, as well as uh, other writers in the New Testament, we know that our inheritance uh, has respect to a, uh, a specific thing. And that has to do with, with the millennium. It has to do with the rule of Christ over the earth, the hope of glory, the, the inheritance of the saints, and so on. Matter of fact, even in verse uh, 18, he mentions uh, there, he says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So he's not ignoring or not dealing with this topic. He's not ignoring that when he speaks about those things beyond the millennium. But I said that to simply say this. Now let's go back over to chapter 2 and let's finish verse 6 with verse 7. He says, And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that, that's a purpose word there, that in the ages, plural, to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now, that goes beyond the millennium. You see, He's speaking of that which occurs past the millennium. Those who have trusted in Christ, everyone, ultimately will be present with Christ. And there they will be shown forth as trophies of his grace. And he says, for the ages to come. Now, he doesn't, you know, the Bible doesn't get very specific with us about what is to come following the millennium. But Paul does give us words of encouragement here that following that 1,000-year rule of Christ in the ages to come, there will be a total, complete makeover, and there will be a oneness when all things are brought together in Christ, presented to God the Father, and there will be a, a, a new uh, order of things to come following the millennial rule. Now, I said that to go back and say, let's look now in chapter 1 again, and verse 21. Um, and he says there, far above all principality and power, of course he's speaking about Christ there, and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, now that's our word eon again, not only in this age, 
singular, but also in that, and it's understood here, that age which is to come. So he does speak very specifically, see, in chapter 1 about the present age and the one to come. But in chapter 2, in dealing with these Gentiles, in in dealing with the free gift, and we haven't got to that part yet in verse 8, but dealing with the free gift of salvation, we need to understand that even those who do not end up being able to participate in the millennial rule will still be with Christ and they will be shown forth, as it were, in the ages to come uh, as we will be displayed, as it were, to show forth his grace, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy to Gentiles. Now, he tells us in verse 8, as a result of that, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, that passage there tells us in no uncertain terms that salvation is a gift. If you were a Calvinist, you would read into this passage according to your Calvinistic theology in order to be consistent, and they would say, as I just got through reading this morning, I was reading uh, one author, you know, that he says faith is, is the gift. In other words, God gives you the gift of faith to make it possible for you to even believe. But there's real problems with interpreting this verse that way. One of those problems is this. The word grace and the word faith are both feminine. But the word for gift is neuter. And in grammar, you would understand that if you used a word that was neuter, you would not expect any, any words preceding that or an antecedent to that you would not expect it to be of either masculine or plural. You'd expect them also to be neutered. But they're not. They're in a feminine form. And so the most natural explanation then and understanding of the passage without going any further than that this morning is simply to say that the word gift... Uh, well, by the way, maybe I should mention this. The word gift is in an adverbial form. And the word saved is in a verb form. And so the most natural connection there is to understand that the gift is salvation. The gift is not faith. So it looks like this then. We are saved, how? As a gift from God. It's totally of Him and it's His work. We are saved by grace. That's the grounds upon which God saves us. That's the ground, those are the, that is the grounds upon which, or the ground upon which, God extends his salvation to us is his own grace. And then lastly, the means by which then we are saved, or which that is appropriated, is faith. It is up to you and I to believe. And so then we might we say we are saved by grace through faith. That is the means by which it occurs. Well, having said that, I want us to see then that Paul's focus here is upon the freeness of the gift and that this freeness of the gift will extend beyond things dealing with the millennium or things dealing with the age to come. 
because he references this whole process of being made alive from after having been dead in trespasses and sins as something that God will do in the ages, plural, to come. Now, of course, I don't say that in any way whatsoever to minimize what Paul is talking about with respect to the millennium or the age to come. Because we know that the scriptures say, I have much to say about that. As a matter of fact, turn over just a, a few pages to 1 Timothy, and let's just look at something over there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 17, there Paul says to Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world, or in this age, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. And that word high-minded just be, means because you're rich is to not think more highly of yourself than you ought to be thinking. Um, but rather, he says not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute or share, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. And that word time is actually the same word as we find up in verse 17. Eonios, against the age to come. So laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the age to come that they may lay hold on age life or age abiding life. So you, there is a very specific and definite uh, teaching by Paul in the New Testament, of course, where he wrote uh, that there is an age to come following this one. And there are specific promises and blessings regarding that age to come. Now, I, I say those things. Well, let, let, let's, before I do that, let's go back to Ephesians now. Let's turn back to the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. And, um, of course, again, Paul is still dealing with the, the, the matter of the body of Christ, the church, and in the last verse, last two verses, verse 20 and 21, he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Now, it's interesting there, the word ages there is the word generations. It's not the word eon. However, the word world is the word eon. So, we might understand this verse more literally to say this, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all generations unto the age of the ages. So, what we want to see here is that Paul speaks very specifically, and even here in the same epistle, in this letter to Ephesus, he speaks about the ages to come, but he points out specifically the age to come. And there are certain promises associated with that age. And there is a calling 
to us as believers, as Christians, to appropriate those promises with respect to the age to come. Now, there, you know, the Bible is very clear in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as to the, the glory that's going to be on this earth during that age. Now, that's the one following this one. When this age is brought to completion, there will be an age to follow this one. It will last for a thousand years. Christ will return, and he will be the one who will rule over this earth during that time, as opposed to the one who is now ruling over the earth in chapter 2, where Paul calls, him, calls this person the prince of the power of the air. And then that one will be removed, this one who is now ruling, and Christ will then rule. There will be a period of a thousand years of rule, and then, he says, there are ages, periods of time, following that one. And so, in chapter 2, what I was trying to point out here then is simply to say that a person who has trusted Christ as their Savior, if they have believed on the Lord Jesus and accepted the gift of God by faith, then there will be something out there in the future following the millennium in the ages to come. However, given the focus that, that God has put on the New Testament, promises of the age to come, and the glory of his son ruling over the earth for that thousand years, I, was, I simply want to point out to us that the negative consequences of not seeking after that kingdom and not living a life in accordance with that spells out a, a real doom, a real disaster for that person. The Bible uses many descriptive terms to talk about what it's going to be like for that person. But they're going to miss out on the millennium. They're going to appear, the Bible says, in outer darkness. And it's going to be like a, a thousand years of being an emotional wreck. Because there's going to be a lot of weeping, a lot of wailing, and a lot of gnashing of teeth for that one who fails to seek that. You talk about need of a psychologist, but there's going to be no hope then, see? Nothing until that thousand years is over. So I'm trying to help us to see, to put all that into perspective as to what the thousand years holds for us and why the Lord puts such great promise on it and such emphasis is because of his son, Jesus Christ. What he accomplished in his death on the cross in, in making it possible to attain to a place of rulership. The very place in which God originally created man back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, created to have dominion over the earth, dominion over all the living things that God has put upon the earth. That's what God made us for, to be kings and rulers. But of course we've suffered and lost that because of disobedience, and because of our failures before God. And the whole human race has lost out on that. Except it were for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah who came and took on a body of flesh and bore our sins in his body, dying a sacrificial death for us, rising from the grave, appearing unto men as alive, 
and now ascended to the right hand of God the Father. There as the hope that we now can possess, the hope that Paul talks about in chapter 1, this hope of his calling, this future possession of the inheritance that he promises to us. And so, yes, to the one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who what we commonly term, and I don't exactly like this, but I don't have a better way to express it, the gospel of grace, as opposed to the gospel of glory. And the Bible speaks very clearly again about the gospel of the, of the glory, the glory which is to come. And so it does us no good. We do not fully benefit if we're just going to accept the gospel of grace or believe on the Lord as Paul expresses it here in chapter 2 and verse 8. If we want to enjoy the blessings of Christ's rule over the earth. But also to say, though there will be a thousand years of misery and woe for that one who fails to attain to that glory, there is a future for that person. And of course, if we were to go ahead to look at Revelation 20 and 21, we would see that there will be yet a resurrection and there those will those who fail to attain to that will be brought up to the Lord at his great white throne. And there they will be judged when the books are open. And see, they will be then be judged according to their works, just like we who appear at the judgment seat of Christ will be judged according to our works as well. And then there, they do have that promise, that, uh, and I don't want to confuse I don't want to confuse the two different things by using the same word, but they still have that, that hope, that promise of being with the Lord in the ages to come. But I want us to bring us back, having said that, to Paul's emphasis here in chapter 1 on achieving or arriving or attaining to that inheritance which he has promised to us. Or has he, as he expressed it in uh, Romans chapter 8, that we would be co-inheritors with Christ, co-heirs or joint heirs with Christ. That's the ultimate goal. That is the purpose of a Christian being on this earth. And if you are not seeking for that, if you are not looking for that hope, if you are not waiting and watching for Christ's return with that expectation of serving with him and reigning with him, in his rule over the earth, then it's going to be a great big disappointment to you, see, for, the, for a thousand years through the completion of that millennium. Now, what God has in store after that, I do not know. Because I don't believe that I, that I can find anywhere specifically that he tells us, except that when he says in verse 7 that he might show us forth as the, uh, to be the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And that will be some kind of blessing and some kind of positive thing. But I want us to see that where our focus should be today, and that is attaining to that glory of the resurrection that will lead to rulership with Christ Jesus in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for the promises and the assurances that you've given us in your word. Thank you, Father, for the, the, the clarity that you've given us. Um, we pray that um, 
through our study of your word and as we look to those things that you've revealed to us that would be very diligent about it, that would be careful to uh, study those things out that you've given to us. We don't want to just be lax or carefree uh, about the precious things that you've given to us in Christ, knowing what it cost him to come to this earth and, and to take on a body of flesh and become a man and, and then to die and suffer as he did. I pray, Father, that uh, if there would even be one here who has never had that kind of assurance and knowing they, they believed on the Lord, then I pray that today they would do that very thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.